0: As we uh, begin today I need to just check your vocabulary for the for the presence of one word. That word is paradigm. Do you guys know the word paradigm? Yes? That's not enough yeses. Yes, okay. Paradigm. It's a model, a way of thinking, right? We have paradigms for all sorts of things. Uh, We have a paradigm in school called the A student. Any A students here? No. Good. (laughs) Good. Um, we have paradigms in, in steak. This morning I said the keg, but then in between the break we started talking with someone that has roots in Brazil, and they started talking about Brazilian barbecue, and that is actually a new and higher paradigm of food and meat because at this place, apparently, if I understand it right, Calvin, you're, you'll love this, you skip the salad and go straight to the meats, and they have 22 different meats that they serve you. So that's a paradigm for barbecue, right? We have paradigms. There are paradigms also in fashion and there's a paradigm that affects me based on something called the Vitruvian man. The Vitruvian man, you've seen him. You might not know his name but you've seen him. He's the man that you sometimes see in a circle. There's two of them. There's one guy standing like this and the other guy's like this, right? He looks like he's doing a jumping jack and there's a circle around him in a square. That's the Vitruvian man and he was made popular to us by a man named Da Vinci. You guys are awesome. We didn't have that picture available and I, there's a reason why. but we're all grown-ups here so it'll work the vitruvian man um in this paradigm the the wingspan of a person is directly proportional to their height so that the expectation is that if you measured someone from fingertip to fingertip and compared it to their height it'd be the same one to one all right So I'm sure this is the idea behind the manufacture of the kind of clothes that you can buy off of the racks at the stores and and jackets and all that kind of stuff. Um, And they are designed to fit this Vitruvian man, Italian clothing, one-to-one ratio. But here's my problem, I am not this ideal man. I know it's a newsflash to you, but I'm not the perfect man. In fact, I, I, I don't fit into this perspective at all, I don't fit this paradigm at all. And here's the problem. Some of you might not know this, but I'm only 5'11", if that, all right? people think I look taller, but I think it's because you, you tend to pay attention to my arms. See, from here to here, I'm 5'11", but from here to here, I'm 6'5", <laughs> right? That makes me somewhat of a monster or, or something, right? It, there's something wrong with the way, but I, I don't fit a regular paradigm for... For suits. So I can't just go in and grab the shirt that says it's for my neck size and throw it on because it's a problem. So if I go into the tailor and they grab a suit for me, they measure me up and they say, okay, we've measured his neck and we measured the other measurements. Let's just grab him a 40 regular. They bring it on. They've put it on. They're looking at everything. It goes fits here and they get to my arms and they're like, there's something wrong. Why isn't there not enough material? And they have to analyze the system and come back and say, we need a new paradigm. Get this guy a 40 tall. Alright, so I walk around in 40 talls to get the sleeves that work, but that means that my shirt today is tucked into my knees. <laughs> so that's my life. And an interesting thing about jackets and suits is that um, there is a jacket that I almost fit from 20 years ago, maybe. I can share a jacket with Charles Ting, <laughs> oddly enough, except for the arms. But his style from 20 years ago and my style today, they work really good. So if you see me walking around in some nice sports jackets, they're Charles Tings. Thank you, Charles. Just check the arms. Well, uh, I don't fit that paradigm. I'm unsuitable for it. I, uh, when you're dealing with me, you have to bring in a new paradigm. So we have these paradigms, and paradigms, as I said, are models uh, for what we expect, and we can compare real people to them. We have the A student, we have first-class seating, we have keg states. We have these kind of things. Um, We have first-class hunters, like a Pastor Kelvin, right? We have all that kind of stuff. Paradigms. We can compare people to these paradigms, but when they don't compare properly, we call them unsuitable, all right? And unsuitable for the paradigm. They don't fit. They're not appropriate, and that can be a problem, and sometimes we have to decide whether we continue to use our paradigm or we get rid of that paradigm so that we can learn how to accept this person who doesn't fit. Well, Jesus came to change the paradigm of the first century Pharisaic Judaism, which had become the predominant religious paradigm among the people of God. In that paradigm, you were expected to fast twice a week and avoid social interaction with sinners. If you did this, you were considered holy and devoted to God. If you didn't, your behavior was considered unsuitable. So, Whenever we find Jesus eating with sinners and leading his disciples to disregard the weekly fasts, his behavior raised questions. The Questions like this, was Jesus a suitable religious leader? Can he really be a savior? Can he be a messiah of this system if he doesn't conform to the paradigm set up by the most holy individuals within the paradigm as they knew it? And perhaps we have questions of Jesus like that sometimes, too. Can Jesus really be suitable for our salvation? Can he fit the religious ideas and and structures that we have and really save me? Can Can he work, or do I need to ditch that and go with Jesus? Well, the question is answered in the Gospels loudly. They proclaim that Jesus is perfectly suited to be our Savior. The paradigm of that day was wrong, and Jesus was right, and we need to trust him to lead us to salvation. So I want to put that challenge to you today as a question. Is Jesus an unsuitable Savior to you, or is he suitable for you? We'll look at this parable today, and it might change the way you think about him. It might lead you into salvation, or if you're saved already, I hope it will lead you deeper into the kingdom of heaven. This parable is found in Matthew chapter 9, and it's situated at a dinner party at the house of a tax collector named Levi. We know him as Matthew. He's one of the disciples. And he had trusted Jesus and followed him at his command. He invited Jesus to dinner, and this account is described in Matthew nine fourteen to 17. And it also appears in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Which helps us understand that this is a pretty significant event with an important message, and the message is this. Jesus is the Savior who is suitable for our salvation. You don't have to fit someone else's religious paradigm to receive salvation. You simply need to trust and follow Jesus. So let's dig into this word today. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse 14 and take it all the way to verse 26. Jesus is at the supper and some critics have come to him. First it was a group of Pharisees and now some disciples who followed John the Baptist. They didn't have John's heart to see Jesus. They were people that were, had a religious paradigm of their own. And they come looking at Jesus saying, hey, you don't fit our paradigm, so we want to ask you about your behavior. So they come with this question. Uh, verse 14. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just come into your house today, and we've gathered in your name, and we want to worship you. And in this moment, we want you to speak to us from your word. Lord, uh, we may not even recognize how desperate we are to know what you have to say to us. But today, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. I pray that you'd help me to deliver this word as I should. God, I pray that you'd let us grasp the meaning of this parable, that we might see you as our Savior, the only one who is suitable for us. God, challenge us today in this this scripture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've had the privilege of studying this text this week for some time, I realize that it it explains reasons why Jesus did not fit the paradigm of his day. Uh, He was asked why he didn't lead his disciples to fast, but his answers really tell us why he doesn't fit at all for what they were expecting. So Matthew's gospel unfolds for us, I believe, three uh, answers about what made him unsuitable to their paradigm. We want to look at those today. So the first is this. The first reason why Jesus' disciples did not fast was because Christ is appointed for celebration. Christ is appointed for celebration. At verse 15, Jesus answers their question with this strange response. Why don't you fast? Why don't you guys Eat, or why don't you guys stop eating on, on, like we do sometimes? He answers, well, guys, listen, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Jesus' answer tells us that Jesus didn't uh, fast with his disciples because it was inappropriate for them to do so. It was unsuitable for what he was doing. He had come to do something different. It was unsuitable In their paradigm for him not to fast, but in his paradigm of the kingdom that he was bringing in, it was completely appropriate for them to be celebrating with him. Perhaps the reason that this question came up at this particular time was, in this religion, as I told you, uh, there was two times a week when they fasted. My study said that they sometimes, well, the people fasted on a Monday and then again on Thursday. And this was in addition to the one time in all of the Old Testament in which people were supposed to fast, which was the day of Yom, K- Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the one fast that was prescribed by Moses. But these people who wanted to appear extra holy fasted twice a week. And it's possible that this meal that Jesus was having at a tax collector's house among sinners was happening on either on Monday or a Thursday, and it was a problem because all the elite people in the religion were not fasting, and Jesus was there having a party among these unsavory people. This offended John's disciples' sense of what was appropriate. And so it's to them that this example of how to behave in anticipating, in anticipating a wedding is given for their consideration. And it's simple. He says, look... When someone's preparing for a wedding, nobody expects the people with the groom to fast. Now, this catches our attention because they're talking about fasting and Jesus is talking about a wedding. What's the point? Well, here's how we unlock this part. Jesus is the groom and the disciples are his guests and they are together celebrating the upcoming wedding of the lamb with the bride called the church. This is a theme that continues to develop in scripture if you go all the way to Revelation, if you go through Ephesians, you'll see this, that Christ is often referred to as the groom and the church, us, are referred to as the bride. And at this point in life, Jesus was coming in and beginning the kingdom of God and they were celebrating with his disciples. He's calling people to him to follow him, and he was building his church, and they were getting ready for this celebration meal, and and they they were celebrating. Christ had come to claim his bride, the church. So it was inappropriate for the people who were following him closely and understood what was going on for them to fast. He wasn't going to lead them against his paradigm. It didn't fit theirs, but it did fit his. Here's why fasting didn't fit. Fasting twice a week was not appropriate for his disciples because fasting was associated with mourning and sorrow. He said it's not appropriate for them to mourn while he is with them. They'll mourn after he was gone. It kind of hints at the fact that Jesus was, gonna, was going to leave them at some point. Fasting is called afflicting the soul in one of the commentaries that I read. Afflicting the soul. Wounding yourself spiritually to get God's attention. Fasting involved ashes and sackcloth. Fasting meant things were terribly wrong and that God needed to show up. Fasting was appropriate for times described in a place like Joel, chapter 1, verse 14 and on. If you want to flip there, you're welcome to do that, but keep a finger in Matthew chapter 9. I want to read something that talks about the time for fasting that's just very different than the time of a wedding. Joel writes this in his, in his prophecies. Uh, Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, the storehouses are in ruins, the granaries have broken down, for the grains have dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about, because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep are suffering." To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. This was a time when relationship with God was broken, and so people were called to fast and mourn. Fasting was this process in which people would, would, would afflict their souls and say, God, something's wrong, and we need you. We need you to come and fix our situation." But Jesus said, this is not the time because I'm here. Jesus was here to celebrate the nearness of God, not his distance. So fasting was unsuitable because Jesus was going to fix their relationship and pour out a fresh blessing. It was unsuitable because God was among them and present in Christ. It was unsuitable because mourning is never appropriate for the paradigm of celebration. Just imagine if you were invited to help someone celebrate their wedding and you showed up covered in dirt and ashes, with your face looking like, oh, sin is so bad, right? And, and, and you're wearing your clothes that are just uncomfortable, sackcloth is uncomfortable, right, you have showed up for the wrong situation. The groomsmen for, for a groom are not showing up to help him mourn, they're showing up to help him celebrate. If he's got those kind of people, he's got the wrong kind of people in his party. We get stories when young men here uh, are getting married of the celebrations that happen, wild things that they do. Um, is Jordan in the room this time? Right there. Jordan, I can only speak of the rumors, which means that I may not know anything. But what I heard about your, your celebration for the preparation for your wedding is that you guys had a party that started here and ended up in Chicago. <laughs> and you ended up in a dress, maybe. That might be rumorish, right? Right. But that doesn't sound like mourning to me. That sounds like a really good time and a great time, right? It sounds like a time when people were, were celebrating. And that's what Jesus said. It's not the time to mourn. I'm here with my disciples and they know me. I'm the Savior. The Savior has come. I'm appointed for celebration. Jesus had come to invite people to a celebration that began in his day, continues in ours, and will be fully experienced in the future. And that's why when Jesus started his ministry, he turned to, the, to the Isaiah and read this about himself, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He sent, he sent me to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up that scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today in me... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was appointed for celebration. Isaiah wrote about this, about the marriage that was coming. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, speaking of God over the nation of Israel, the idealized, obedient nation of Israel, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So how do we apply this beginning of this passage to ourselves? Well, the first thing that we learn is that afflicting ourselves so that we might appear holy to our peers is completely ineffectual for salvation and repairs nothing with God. The extreme measures needed to repair the relationship with God have been taken on your behalf. Christ left heaven. He gave up his status up there and came here for us to suffer on the cross so that we could be made holy by his sacrifice on our behalf. He allowed himself to be afflicted in our place. Here's the romance of it. This groom suffered so that his his future wife wouldn't have to, and he's come to get her, and it's a celebration party. So that's what they were celebrating on this day when everybody else was fasting. That's why he didn't fit in. The kingdom of God was coming, and the disciples were more in the mood to party than mourn. So I have two questions for you as we move into this passage. What mood are you in this morning? As you've come to church, as you've come to the extension of that party that began with Jesus and his disciples so many years ago, what, what paradigm have you walked in here with? What, what constructs do you fit Jesus into, and what mood has it left you in this morning? Are, are you in the mood to celebrate with Christ? Or are you in the mood to criticize him and his work? Are you in the mood to question and say, I don't know, Jesus, I'm not sure I'm ready to follow you yet. What kind of savory would you be for me? Right? Are you in the mood to rejoice or are you in the mood to mourn? Well, that's the first reason why he didn't fast. Now, Christ means anointed one. I think most of us know that. And this term, Messiah, is full of symbolism. God set people apart in the Old Testament in those days with this designation, and this anticipated the coming of a unique spiritual figure, a descendant of David who would reign over every nation, and Jesus Christ is is that person. He would be responsible for a shift in paradigms from the old to a new one, and this is why Jesus seemed unsuitable to John's disciples, because they were in the old paradigm. So the second reason that Jesus' disciples did not fast was because Jesus was anointed for change Jesus was anointed for change let's look at verse 16 he goes on to explain this parable now he adds to the answer of the wedding they ask him about why aren't you eating he talks about a wedding and now he's gonna talk about sewing and making wine It's like Jesus seems a little bit out of touch. He's not fitting the expectation, right? But he's he's teaching something. These are parables. Luke calls them parables. So he says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Parables point us toward the new paradigm called the kingdom of heaven without overtly stating its presence. In this way, Jesus is able to signal to his intent to his followers while playing games with those who lack the wisdom to discern that God was in Jesus. So when Jesus is spe- speaking parables, he says, I'm, I'm speaking in a way so that some people hear and some people don't quite understand. And so when we hear a parable like this, we, we kind of get it. We go, okay, I understand something about sowing, and I understand something about the fermentation process. I go, yeah, okay, I understand that. And then you think for a little bit more, and you go, like, wait, do I really understand that? Do I really understand what he's talking about? We're talking about fasting, right? Jesus is talking about sowing and making wine. And, and, and as you play with it more and more, you're sure, do I understand it? Do I not understand it? And that's the nature of a parable. It's a simple simple idea put before you that as you meditate on it it explodes the meaning becomes richer over time as you meditate on who christ is and what he said and that's what we want to have happen this morning we want this to kind of explode in our minds these simple things because it's not just about sewing and wine it's not not things that we should be distracted on these things are just meant to be familiar does anybody still keep a sewing machine in their house we have one, we have, we have two in our house. We have a new one that's like super light and we have this old one that my mom had that's like a brick. Like it's, it's super heavy, right? And she just used to make things. She made our, our like clothes out of that stuff. She made pajamas and shorts and we went out thinking they were fashionable and we were wrong. Um, <laughs> You know, she did stuff like that. I love my mom, and she made some great things for us. Right? I learned to use, I learned to sew. I made a, in in home ec in my elementary school, I made a pencil case and did some things with fabric. So we understand that, right? Some of us may not be as familiar with the crafting of wine, right? We may not be familiar with wineskins. I, for the purposes of this service, fortunately had a father who held a bar in his basement, right? And so he, he, he had an old, like, like, a representation wine skin in his basement. So I understand what that's talking about, right? But I didn't really know how to make wine. But in the process of making wine, you, you take grape juice, which I did get that part, but it, you put it in something, and as it ferments, you put some yeast or something in it, and it ferments, and this produces gases, and that changes the, the, the wine, the sugar in the wine, into alcohol, right? And when you put that in a container, it expands and the gases have to have a place to run out. So that's why everybody knows you don't put that kind of potent stuff into an old wineskin because it's just going to break. These were very practical things, right? Like, um, you know, like telling your kids don't throw toys in the toilet bowl, right? People just understood that, right? It's just inappropriate, right? Um, There's all sorts of things that I I probably shouldn't say, but just things they already understood. This is not appropriate, and that's what he just wanted to say. What, What you guys are asking me to do to fast with you on Monday or Thursday like this is totally inappropriate for what's going on. So in this parable I think Jesus is also expressing some sympathy for John's disciples who are inquiring about his behavior. Because he knew he was doing something new and it didn't fit with their ways. And I'll assume that because they were with John who was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah that they really wanted Jesus to fit with the religion that they already practiced, that the, the religion that they held themselves out to, to, to be holy in. And so I, I think Jesus cared about that, and he says things uh, to help them understand the significance of what they had and why they wanted to hold on to it, but also that they would recognize the new thing that he was bringing in. So to understand this, we must see these things. First, the old garment and the old wineskin represents the religious paradigm of Jesus' day. Not Jesus's, but that that the Pharisees and the disciples of John had. And it was based on the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and the whole idea was this that law had not yet been satisfied. The Old Testament rules required people to bring sacrifices and make continual atonement for their sin, to come back over and over and over and over again to fix the problem of sin. And it was never done, it just always reminded them that they were guilty and so they'd have to bring a, a, a sacrifice, and it was not satisfied. So people grew up and made religion based on that, the law of Moses being unsatisfied. The unshrunk cloth and the new wine and the wineskins represent the new kingdom paradigm that Jesus was celebrating. This was based on the law of Moses, the same law being fully satisfied in Jesus Christ as our representative atonement. Romans 5 explains that Jesus Christ The one man was able to make atonement for every human that follows Christ. It says this. It explains the transition from death, the old way under the law, to life, the new way in grace. The the law to grace, from old to new. The rest of this is just practicality. So it's easy to understand, but we might miss out if we focus on the wine and 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 the cloth and not see the kingdom stuff. So Jesus in the new kingdom had fulfilled the law and so things were able to change that's what he was appointed to do he hadn't done it yet but later he would go to the cross die for our sins and that would be the one sacrifice by which all men can be saved that's the gospel nothing else had to die right no one else had to to try to put holiness on so Jesus knew that it was hard for them to accept that he did not fit their paradigm it was all they knew And it appears he understood their desire to protect it. It was only, after all, natural for them to do so. That's why he said, you know, know, no one puts a patch on the old garment because it will tear the old garment. And no one puts the wine into the old wineskins because you'll lose the wineskins. That's his language, I think, that says, I get it, guys. What you you built for yourselves, this paradigm that doesn't fit me, you care about that and you want to protect it. And you're here asking me questions because that matters to you. But I'm doing something new. And this new thing is distinct from the old thing, and both continue to have significance. But the new represented a danger to the old to damage it. And this is no more evident than in the fact that when Jesus Christ died, the curtain in the temple where people met with God that separated the sinner from the holiness of God was torn in two. Jesus Christ challenged that system by saying, um, I will tear down the temple. In three days, I'll build it again. I will tear down the temple, the centerpiece of the old paradigm where people had to go to try to get pardoned from God and then go back to get pardoned again. And he said, I'll build it again. And when he built it again, that was at his resurrection. And it didn't have to happen anymore because now people went to Christ once and they received favor and mercy for the rest of their lives. So now we don't go to the temple. We go to Christ. Christ was appointed, anointed for change. Have you made that change? Have you, do you go to Christ for his favor and grace? Or do you try to go back to a system where you try to make up for your own sins with your behavior? Where you, where you take it a couple steps farther and say, well, if he wants me to fast, I'm going to fast Monday and Thursday. I'm going to make sure everybody knows that I feel bad about my sin. Or do you just go to Jesus and start that party with him? Do you start that celebration? Have you made that change? Well, sometimes parables come with an explanation. Sometimes they come with an explanation to help us understand. The disciples pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, you just said something. We're supposed to be your disciples. We don't even get it. We do that with Pastor Rick sometimes. (laughs) What? No, just joking. He, He always teaches us first so we don't have to look embarrassed in front of everybody. But um, they would go to him and say, Jesus, what does this mean? Right? There's no explanation here. There's, there's no unfolding of the meaning for us. So we have to kind of figure it, ourselves, figure it out for ourselves. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote about this account. But Mark and Luke wrote about it very differently. They attached a sequence of events after these things happened that is different from what Matthew wrote down. So we have three people talking about the same thing, and Mark and Luke talk about it in a different way from this point on than Matthew does. Matthew takes some events that happen later on in Jesus' story and sticks them onto the end of this parable. And I think he does that to explain what the parables mean for us with a real-life illustration. So don't be alarmed by this. Everybody that studies Scripture understands that the Gospels were written in such a way as to help readers see things. And Matthew wrote particularly to people that came out of this system, out of this paradigm. And he wanted them to catch who Jesus was. And he wanted them to catch the meaning of these parables. And so he just grabbed some things that happened a little bit later and threw them on here and connected them with a phrase so they appeared in one story so, that these, so these parables could be understood in a fuller way. And so the point they make help us understand this. Jesus did not fast with his disciples. They didn't fast because Jesus was adorned with power. It was unsuitable for him to fast because of who he really was. Look at uh, the passage here, verse 18. Now, Matthew in his design connects this part of Jesus' history to this story with the word while in the NIV. While he was saying this, that's, that is, while he was explaining the parable, a ruler came and knelt before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, while they're on the way to deal with that problem, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched just the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter, he said, for your faith has healed you, and the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him, and the crowd had been put outside. He went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. They laughed at Jesus when he went to meet this dead girl, because they didn't understand what he could do. You have to understand that. Their paradigm did not allow for the the fact that Jesus Christ, whom we all know, can raise people from the dead. They didn't know that. So when he went into this room and he said, I'm going to help this girl out, they're like, Jesus, you can't do that. You you, you won't be able to do that. This is not going to work. This is going to be kind of embarrassing for you. So they laughed. Their paradigm did not account for the kind of power that Jesus had. These, these accounts of healings and, and this miraculous events, they, they demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ. And to us, these miracles are absolutely stunning. They're, they're amazing. It's, someone is healed instantly. Someone is raised from the dead. And we would be enough. We could be undone with that fact that Jesus can do these things, and that's incredible, and, and we should give him all sorts of praise for that. But that's not the point that Matthew wanted to, to make because his audience was thinking, I think, something different. Uh, they were seeing his power... Uh, Not just to to do these miracles, but to keep himself from being defiled by people that the old paradigm called unclean. People that the old paradigm called unfit to worship with God, to be in fellowship with the people that were righteous. Um, Jesus' power was different. Because in his paradigm, he could touch these people. He could come into contact with these people. And instead of Jesus, the righteous one, becoming unclean because of their potential sin or because of their potential disease or because of their t- potential whatever's, they became like him. They became clean. They became healed. They became whole. They became filled with life. Is that what happened to you when you came into contact with Jesus? Did he become more like you or did you become more like him? How many of you would say that as I've gotten to know Jesus, I've become more like him? Hallelujah. Right? Well, watch, watch what happens here. They didn't know this was going to happen. They were thinking about the law of Moses, the old, the old paradigm. Which still had significance for them. And according to the law of Moses, a person who was hemorrhaging, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, a person who was hemorrhaging was unclean, affected by a condition that made them unwelcome among the unrighteous until the situation was cleared up. So for 12 long years, this woman was marginalized in society. She couldn't just move through that crowd as an easy person. Everybody knew her, and everybody would have gone through and said, we don't want to have any contact with this person. We don't want to touch her. We don't want to be around her, because if we touch her, we'll be contaminated, we'll be unclean, and we'll be not fit for God's presence. So the law had stated that if people sat where she sat, if they touched her bed, if they, if they contacted her body, they would be like her, unclean. That was in the law of Moses, and it directed them away from that. And in the law of Moses, it said that anyone who touched a dead body also became unclean for seven days. And the people who are reading this knew that. They knew that far better than we understood. They're like, If Jesus goes and touches these people, just like Jesus shouldn't be at this party with these tax collectors and, and sinners and all this stuff, he shouldn't be with Levi, he's defiling himself, he's forgetting uh, what God wants, the way we think God wants things, and he's, he's risking his holiness, And so they go with him to see what happens. And the miracle is this, that they're included. So strong is this idea that they should be discluded is that it's actually written in Numbers 5, the disclusion of the unclean. Numbers 5, 1 says this, Command, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send them away, male and female alike. Send them outside of the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. And the Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. So, in this paradigm, the power of the unclean was that they could make the clean unclean. Sometimes, if we check ourselves and we go back and maybe our history. Hopefully it's a long time back, but maybe maybe it's more recent than that for some of us, if we're honest. We will look at people that way and think, if I associate with you, you're going to wreck my holiness. If I come in contact with you, you're going to take me down into the pit. And there has been some wisdom about that. But Jesus' power is so different because he said, when I come into contact with you, you're not going to touch me. You're not gonna do anything to my holiness. I'm gonna do something to your unclean state. I'm gonna make you well. I'm gonna make you holy again. So he takes people who are marginalized and stigmatized and segregated and dead and he brings them into the kingdom. Yes, this meant Jesus was totally unsuitable for his old paradigm. Rather than becoming defiled by contact with the woman, she became clean and her bleeding stopped. Rather than becoming contaminated by this dead body of this little girl, she became clean and was raised back to life. Rather than becoming contaminated when Jesus came close to you and he saw you in your sinful state and he knew what you were doing and he offered you salvation. When he reached out his hand to you and you took it and said, Jesus, I believe and I want to follow you. Rather than Jesus coming down to your level, he began to raise you up to his. That's the gospel in our lives. And some of you have said this morning that's happened to you. And praise God that it has. This is good news. We say hallelujah. We say God is here when we see that happening. We say this is the gospel. Jesus doesn't fit the old paradigm. He fits a new one, and I'm so glad that he does. I was thinking of a simple way to explain this, and and I was watching my son this week who kind of showed me what, what was happening here. We were out eating some food, and, and typically when we're out with our kids, you do this too. You order French fries because they'll always go, right? They won't leave the French fries on the plate. And French fries are good particularly because of the salt we put on them, right? So my son is eating French fries, and he was eating some other, some other salty things too. And when he was done, he started licking his fingers, right? And you're like, what are you licking your fingers for, right? They're dirty, right? And I thought about it. He said, he, I thought, he's not licking his fingers because they taste like fingers, he was licking his fingers because they taste like french fries, right? They tasted like the salt. Those fries had come into contact with salt, and then his fingers came into contact with the fries, which had come into contact with the salt. And now his fingers tasted like french fries. His fingers tasted like salt. Isn't it interesting when God calls the church the salt of the world, right? Because when you come into Christ's contact with Christ, you don't, he doesn't become more like you. You become more like him. You get what he has. It rubs off on you. I didn't get the warning. So I'll say this. Possibly that little child reminded me of this. Jesus is kind of like finger-licking good. <laughs> we were praying this morning, preparing for the, for the day, and we're sitting upstairs in the boardroom, and light was shining in through the window, illuminating a square on the table. And another thing we know, a simple way of looking at this, is that wherever light shines, it makes things brighter, right? John called Jesus the light of the world. When Jesus came in contact with the dark, it says the darkness flees, right? Dark never crushes the light. Light dr- drives away the darkness. Whatever the light touches shines. Whatever the light touches glows. And isn't it interesting that Jesus called the church light, right? So Matthew put these things here in his story, different from Luke, different than Mark, because his audience, he wanted them to catch the meaning of this parable. Jesus had a power, and his power was that when he came into contact with people that their paradigm defined as unclean, he made them clean, and he taught them that if they came into contact with Jesus, they could help Jesus make other people clean too. So, Jesus was not suitable as a savior for the paradigm of John's disciples, not the one that led them in to criticize Jesus and question Jesus. He was suitable for a different one, a better one, even if they didn't recognize it at first and tried to protect their ideals. Jesus is the savior who is suitable for the sinners, he's the one who is suitable for the sick. He's the one who is suitable for those who are desperate to find their way into the blessing of God, but are disqualified on the law of Moses, thinking that their atonement was not going to be made. They're the ones that recognized that they fell short. And the truth is, as Romans 3.23 proclaims, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of that standard. So what does that mean? It means that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Savior who is suitable for every one of us because every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is sick in some way. Every one of us is desperate for the mercy and the blessing that comes from being in the kingdom of God. So the gospel, this gospel proclaims the gift of this new paradigm called the kingdom of heaven. The celebration and the change and the power in the kingdom that Christ inaugurated, they're for us, the church, his bride, the one that he let himself be afflicted for so that he could marry her and begin a new life that would go on forever. And we would rejoice about that. It's all been for us. So that means that we are approved for mercy and grace. We are approved. When we go to Christ, we don't have to have a question anymore. Will this work out? If I take this to Jesus, is this going to be bad or good? You know, is he going to pardon me? Is he going to punch me down for my sin? Or is he going to accept me? This woman who made her way through the crowd, defiling people in the old system as she went through, just even wanted to touch his cloak... Some people say that might be because of a superstitious principle. It may be because she's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to wreck Jesus' holiness. But she thought, maybe, maybe God's power in this man will touch my life and change me in an instant. And I can be healed. I can be made well. And Jairus, he, the leader of the synagogue, a Pharisee himself, probably took some ridicule, coming to Jesus, who they're mocking, and he bows down and says, can you help me? Can you help me? I need, I need you to help my family. I need you to help my daughter. They come because they already began to understand what we need to understand today. They were approved for mercy and grace. That's the scandal that was going on for those in the Pharisaic Judaism, that Jesus was giving this stuff away for free. It causes me to want to praise him we're going to have a few moments now. I'm going to pray. The band is going to come. We're going to sing a song, Jesus Only Jesus. And that challenge I put before you is here now. Is Jesus suitable for you? Do you see yourself more as someone who has a paradigm and Jesus needs to come in as a patch on your life, as, as, um, as something that you're going to try to fill into your, your religious box? Or are you ready to say, you know, Jesus is unsuitable for that? I need to shift and go over to where Jesus is building this kingdom and I need to be there. Is he suitable for you? Will you let him lead you as a savior? Will you go deeper into his kingdom? He's the only one qualified to lead you there. He's the only one who's come seeking your salvation. So let's pray. Let's sing. Let's remember that Jesus is our suitable savior. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for the time that he took to explain what he was doing in our world why he was here, and what needed to change, and how we could access your power, Lord God. We go to him. The temple's gone. The sacrifices are gone for us because Christ sacrificed himself for us. And then he came back to be our place of meeting with you. God, I so thank you for his power that makes me more like him and not him more like me. So Lord, I pray today that you would work in our hearts, that you accept our praise, that we would see you as this high king, this Messiah, this one and only savior for us, your church, and that we would join the celebration. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you need this Jesus? Is this Jesus we've just sung about suitable for you, or are you a religious person looking for someone to be a patch on the life situation you have going on? Can you identify with Matthew, this tax collector who didn't fit the paradigm of those that God should hang out with? Can you identify with this marginalized person on the edge of society who didn't qualify because of the sickness in her life? Can you identify with this person who left his status just to bow down at the feet of Jesus so that his family would be helped? Do you need a savior like Jesus? Can you see yourself in the pages of this gospel this morning? Of course you can. Of course you can. God wants you to see yourself, so you must respond now. Is Jesus your Savior? Yes. Hopefully your answer is yes. If your answer is not yet, I encourage you, I implore you, don't leave. Stay here. Sit in your seat. Come to the front. Do something. But connect your life with God. He is not going to become more like you. You are going to become more like his son. And that is the message of salvation. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you so much. So much for your gospel. Thank you so much for what Jesus has done in my life, in the life of my family, in the life of this church. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't come with our own preconceived notions of who Jesus should be. That we would come and let you be the Savior of our very lives. That we would jump into this new thing, this kingdom of God with you. That we would go first and become saved and that we would continue to go deeper into the kingdom as your disciples, Father. I pray that we wouldn't take this weekend off from following you, but that we would just continue to run after you hard, Jesus Christ. We thank you. Help us to see that you are our only Lord and Savior, the only one who could have ever saved, who would ever come seeking sinners like us. We thank you for that salvation. Amen.